0: Welcome to another edition of Honestly Speaking With Me, Tara Setmayer. We're on episode three. I'm so glad that you're joining me. So much to talk about. It's been an interesting week. This explosive things happening one right after the other in the news cycle. It's hard to put it all together. Um, there's there's an old adage in politics where it says a week is an eternity in politics. Well, if this week the last week hasn't been a perfect example of that. It's just really been pretty fast paced, tough to keep up with it all. My goodness. So, I am coming to you this week uh, on location in New York City for the week. So, if you hear sirens or things in the background that are a bit abnormal, you know, not regular sirens that you hear every day in New York. Those are probably motorcades um, because it is UNGA week here in New York City. What is UNGA? That is the UN General Assembly. It's an annual gathering of all the major world leaders. They come to the UN for this big powwow. Happens every year in September. And it just turns the east side of Manhattan from basically midtown over into the biggest clusterfuck ever it's a nightmare trying to get around New York City this time of year. And anyone who's been here, or lived through this or worked in UNGA, gets what I'm saying. So if you hear any of that in the background, that's what that is. Um, I am 48 floors up overlooking Times Square, which is pretty cool. I love New York City. I think it's the greatest city in the world. And um, I grew up in Jersey right over the bridge. So I just um, always enjoy being back in New York City. It's uh just an amazing place. So where to begin? Well, I think that we should start with Kavanaugh. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, his nomination is embattled to say the least. Where were we last week? So last week, this accusation from a woman named Dr. Christine Ford was uncovered and where she claimed that Brett Kavanaugh attempted to sexually assault her at a high school party 35 years ago. Initially, people thought that this was just some kind of a character assassination and it was some kind of political ploy by the Democrats because it came out at the 11th hour until more things started to come up and which lended some credibility to Dr. Ford's claim. And we went over a bit of that last week. So what happened after that? Well, a lot of people called for a hearing that she should have the ability to be heard. The American people should hear her story and the accusations publicly. And Judge Kavanaugh should have the opportunity to respond and defend himself. We're never going to know We're not whether it happened or not. This isn't a criminal court at this point. This is really in the court of public opinion. That's where this is going to be adjudicated. And since this is a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court, it should be adjudicated at least in some capacity through a hearing. Well, last week, uh, I think most people, including Chuck Grassley, who is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, he agreed that, yes, okay, we'll postpone this vote. We'll try to work out having a hearing. And then there was back and forth about the terms of the hearing, what day, who was going to be there. And the momentum started to shift from Dr. Ford's side over to the Republicans and the president saying, hey, look, we're trying to give her an opportunity. She's hedging. They're playing, the Democrats are playing political brinkmanship games here. We need to get this vote and get it done. Well, you know, in this, this is a political process. Let's just be honest about that. Supreme Court nominations are some of the wickedest, most vile, most competitive political battles out there because lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court is so consequential, depending on what side of the aisle you're on. If you're a liberal or you're a conservative and you look at major cases that come before the Supreme Court, it it shapes our lives and our laws. And of course, abortion is always the big elephant in the room when it comes to these Supreme Court nominations, which is what this is all about also, the issue of abortion. And so so within all of the political back and forth is this woman's life, the accuser. And, you know, I've tried to go back and forth and, and say to myself, is this credible? Is this just some kind of political Hail Mary? And believe me, in my 25 years of politics, my involvement in politics, I've seen some pretty dirty tricks pulled on both sides in the name of political brinkmanship. Is that going on here? Somewhat. The way that Senator Feinstein handled this, the way the Democrats handled this by holding on to the information and not revealing it until the 11th hour. Yeah, that added a political uh, timing question about this. But if you look at it from the Christine Ford's perspective, what did she have to gain by coming forward? That's been my argument. She's not a lifelong democratic ideologue where she's out there on the front lines working in heavily political um, arenas. I mean, she's a social scientist, she's a PhD psychology professor out in Palo Alto at Palo Alto University. She has a family. This wasn't her life's dream to take down a Supreme Court nominee. So I've had to weigh this back and forth while this has gone on and the arguments because it's turned into a multifaceted argument here. There's the political side of this, fair, fair criticism on timing how it was handled. But there's also the way the Republicans were handling this because the issue of sexual assault is a serious one. In the era of Me Too... You cannot approach these kinds of accusations, which I find to be credible, by Christine Ford. You can't approach these applica- these these accusations so flippantly, which is the, a mistake that a lot of male senators have made in this process, and that's very disappointing for me as a conservative trying to look at this objectively. Um, you know, there's been a series of 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 pretty. Interesting. I wouldn't even say interesting. I would say unacceptable. More unacceptable comments by some Republican senators. They've clearly made up their minds. All of last week, they were. It seemed as though they were going through the motions because they knew they had to give this woman an opportunity to speak publicly, but they really weren't interested in getting into the getting to the bottom of this or finding some kind of truth or whether how you know how credible it would be, despite. Kellyanne Conway and others coming out of the White House saying that they we shouldn't attack the accuser and she deserves to be heard. You know, Mitch McConnell uh, uh, last week, at the end of the week, speaking in front of the Value Voters Summit, basically said, we're going to plow this through. Those were his terms, plow this nomination through and not to get caught up in all of um, all of the distractions and attacks on, on Judge Kavanaugh. Well, that sounds to me like you're approaching whatever upcoming hearings not with an open mind. That means we're just going through the motions because we have to. Not okay. Has it, Has anybody learned anything from the era of Me Too? I, that was not, I, I thought that was really not helpful coming out of the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, who basically controls this whole process, oversees it all. Um, Lindsey Graham, I don't know what the hell happened to Lindsey Graham. He used to be one of the most prolific never-Trumpers. He called Trump unfit for office during the during the campaign and then now he's up Trump's ass in ways that I just don't understand. And I can't imagine that John McCain is proud of what Lindsey Graham is doing now. I, I just they were they were buddies together and, and McCain was at least he was consistent and honest in his approach and criticism of Trump. And now Lindsey Graham is just completely up Trump's ass and one of his biggest defenders. So Lindsey Graham's coming out saying, well, you know, based on what I've seen so far, I have no reason to change my vote. You know, I'm not going to ruin this man's life over an accusation. Really, Lindsey Graham, before hearing, before you even have the opportunity to hear all of the totality of everything that that that's coming out, because as of today, there are more accusers, apparently. There's there's more information. Than what we just had last week. And even with just the information with Christine for Christine Ford, you're already, your mind is already made up. Not the way to go about this. Sexual assault is a very real problem in this country. Women have been going through this for decades. And finally, we're at a point, I would hope, in this society, where the kind of behavior that Many women have described things that they've gone through, even if it were, even if it did happen decades ago, that we're getting to a point where that's not acceptable anymore from men in power or men in general, but particularly men in power or men who think they are entitled. But here we have Republican senators acting like this. Now, thank God for Jeff Flake and Senator Flake and Senator Corker, although they are retiring, for speaking out. Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, key votes, Republican women senators who were like, wait, hold on a second. We need to take this seriously. Everyone needs to just take a breath because everyone is so tribal and it has become just so tribal that no one is thinking clearly. It's just all about scoring political points and and, and retreating to your respective corners. I, I've gotten into... Facebook arguments with people over this that were just immediately calling Dr. Ford a liar and saying that she's made this up and and all. how do you know? How do you know? I don't know whether she's telling the truth or not, but at least we should she should be heard and we shouldn't judge. How about we have an F- FBI investigation? We're not saying a criminal investigation into sexual assault, you know, federal sexual assault, but it is within the purview of the FBI to go back. And reopen the background investigation at the least, the very least, they do this. And they have enough, they have enough evidence or enough information to go on to do that. Talk to Christine Ford, go back and talk to Brett Kavanaugh about the new information and talk about some of the, uh, talk to some of the other people who were there, like Mark Judge. I start, I talked about this a little bit last week. My concerns and why I went from this just being some political attempt by the Democrats to railroad a Supreme Court nomination, how I went from that to I think this is plausible. And one of the main reasons, besides the fact that Christine Ford had notes, contemporaneous notes from her therapist from six years ago where she talked about her sexual assault for the first time, her husband was present. Her husband also said that she did bring up Brett Kavanaugh, even though they weren't in the therapist notes, but that he was named and so was Mark Judge. The fact she took a polygraph, voluntarily. The fact that she made these, the the, the accusations known, but she had an expectation of confidentiality when she did this back over the summer, before Brett Kavanaugh was actually named the nominee. So she wasn't, she wasn't trying to Go out, you know, be all out in front on this. She was trying to do it with an expectation of confidentiality, but in Washington, that very rarely stays that way. And unfortunately, now this woman's life is completely thrown upside in, thrown upside down, thrown into a whirlwind, and she can't even go back to her her home. Her safety's been jeopardized. Her family's the FBI's involved because of the death threats. I mean, this is nuts. So you're telling me that she was motivated to do this, knowing what the fallout would be? That's why a lot of women don't come forward. They don't like to challenge power, because this is what happens. So that's just one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is that Brett Kavanaugh was so unequivocal, categorically denying that this never happened. Nothing like this could ever happen. Well, I want to go back over just briefly. Some of the... Things circumstantial things that have come out in the last week that have made it more more and more plausible to me that this could have happened first of all Mark Judge, who was the other person allegedly in the room, there's been even more information that's been written about this guy. this guy is there's something there there's something off about Mark judge and this is someone that Brett Kavanaugh hung around with. The Washington Post did a story. Um, in the local section, interestingly enough, on September 21st, that I would encourage everyone to go and read read it in full. The title is "A Hundred Kegs or Bust." Kavanaugh friend Mark Judge has spent years writing about his high school debauchery. That tells you me. That tells me that when someone is writing and chronicling their high school wild drunken exploits with parties and women and and drinking and all kinds of stuff. Obviously, these things happened on a regular basis. And Brett Kavanaugh hung out with these guys. Brett Kavanaugh also, in his, in his in his yearbook, said that he was the treasurer of the 100 kegs or bust club. So, you know, you're telling me that, it's, that, that this, did, this all didn't happen, that it wasn't plausible? Mark Judge wrote in his book, Wasted Tales of a Generation Drunk, that he drank too much and he did stupid things he also talked about how they used to go back on Mondays after these wild weekend parties and talk about it with one of their teachers all the things that they did Mark Judge also talks about in 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 detail in some of these books he he talks about um in another book that he wrote, it was I believe it was called God and Man, where he really goes into his time at Georgetown Prep. And he's he he said that that the goal on their uh, on their way to the goal of make of drinking a hundred kegs of beer before graduating, that there were there was a disastrous party at his house where the place was trashed, and this was the the, the club that Brett Kavanaugh was the treasurer of. Remember, hundred kegs or bus club. Mark Judge wrote about this. He also said in, 2005, in 2015, Mark Judge, in an article um, he wrote for this website called Acculturated, um, this is also in the Washington Post piece, he said, I'll be the first one to defend guys being guys, and that there was a culture of drinking and smoking and hooking up, and that his pals even hired a stripper and bought a keg for a bachelor party party. For one of their music teachers. I mean, so this, I mean, they were pretty wild. He said, if you could breathe and walk at the same time, you could hook up with someone. This did not mean going all the way. But after a year spent in school without girls, heavy petting was basically an orgy. This is all from Mark Judge. Why wouldn't this why? Well, well, one of the conditions that Dr. Ford wanted for her testimony, which she has now agreed to, and we're anticipating it for this Thursday. So by the time you're listening to this, it may or may not have happened. But it's supposed to happen on Thursday, September um, 27th, I believe, um, was that she wanted Mark Judge subpoenaed to come and testify and the Republicans were saying no, they only wanted two witnesses. Yeah, well, no shit. I wouldn't want this guy testifying on my behalf if I were Brett Kavanaugh or the Republicans either. Mark Judge is a disaster. He just lends more credence to the possibility that an incident like Christine Ford describes, of of her being thrown on the bed and Mar- and Kavanaugh putting his hand over her mouth so she can't people can't hear her screaming when he tries to remove her clothes, allegedly. It just makes that that scenario that much more plausible. You know, remember people used to say you are who you hang with? Well, you know, guilty by association. Sometimes, especially when you're denying that anything like this ever happened. It matters. So that that just that part of it alone just makes it uncomfortable for me moving forward with this nomination. I really think that at this point Brett Kavanaugh should withdraw just for for the integrity of the seat, There are plenty of other conservative jurists that are qualified, that don't have this kind of baggage. They're out there. But now everyone's dug in. The president's dug in, and I have no reason to not believe him. He's a good guy. You know, Trump, not exactly the most um, credible source on this either, but Trump supporting him unequivocally. But he also supported Roger Ailes, Bill O'Reilly, Mike Tyson, for God's sakes, all people who are guilty of sexually assaulting women. So, you know, the president's no surprise that he's still standing behind him, but it's also a personal thing too, because this is his nominee and he wants it on, he wants him on the court. But then after another, another excuse was that, well, there was only one accuser. There aren't any others out there. That was another, another Kavanaugh talking point. Oh, oh wait, before I even get to that, Ed Whelan last week, putting out this doppelganger, crack up crackpot theory, basically slandering another another classmate at Georgetown Prep of Brett Kavanaugh's trying to say that they looked alike and maybe Dr. Ford was mixed up about who it was. And that was really irresponsible. He put out this tweet thread, Ed Whelan is a is a well known conservative lawyer guy, um, activist and um there's some questions now about whether Kavanaugh was involved, who else was involved in putting out this doppelganger theory. They were floating to see if that would have quieted things down. Well, that blew up miserably, failed miserably. Um, and Kavanaugh should be asked about what role he played in that, if any, during the hearing. But so then, so back to the, well, there was only one accusation and that's not consistent with people who do that, who behave this way. Well, over the weekend... Another accuser came forward, a woman named Deborah Ramirez, claiming that when they were freshmen at Yale, they were drunk at a party and Brett Kavanaugh, they were playing some drinking game and Kavanaugh exposed his penis and basically put it in her face. Um, she didn't want that. And she touched it to get him away from her. Some people now who broke this story. Well, it broke in the New Yorker by Ronan Farrow, who has just been, kicking ass on these kinds of stories. I mean, he's he the one behind the the Harvey Weinstein revelations and many, many other me, big Me Too stories, and now he's gotten this one uh, along with uh, Jane Mayer, another um, journalist over there. They broke this story uh, over the weekend, Sunday evening about another accuser. Well, there goes that theory about that it was only one accuser. How true is it? I don't know. Some people in the New Yorker story say that, yes, they remember this, absolutely. Others question it, who were at Yale. Again, it's a he said, she said, I encourage you to read the New Yorker story. Make your own judgment. Then, just as you thought that that was enough, Michael Avenatti's back. Not with Stormy Daniels. Avenatti then claims on Twitter on Sunday evening that he now has a client that claims that Mark Judge and Brett Kavanaugh were part of some wild party where men, multiple men, were running trains on girls. If you don't know what that is, Google it. I'm not getting into it. But I know what that means. And he said that it's not Deborah Ramirez, chick from Yale, and it's not Christine Ford. So now we're talking a third potential accuser? Doesn't look good. It just doesn't look good. And at this point, whether Kavanaugh is is guilty or not, whether he's innocent or not, I just feel it is it has tainted this nomination to the point where they really need to move forward. Ben Wittes over at Lawfare blog, I'm I'm a big fan of that website. I read a lot of their articles. I find them to be very fair and informative. And um, Ben Wittes wrote a a piece last week before the the latest revelations of the, of these new accusers has come out about why Brett Kavanaugh should withdraw and how he's known Kavanaugh for many years and he was surprised by the accusations. But just the way this circus has become, this whole thing has become such a circus for the good of the integrity of the seat that he should withdraw. I mean, it's not so shabby to keep your seat as a a D.C. Circuit Court judge. At least that wasn't in jeopardy as of last week. Who knows what else is uncovered? Like I said in the beginning, a week is an eternity in politics. I just think that we need to have open minds on this. One last aspect of this that I want to address is that President Trump was uncharacteristically measured by most standards for most of last week concerning this this situation with uh, Christine Ford. And he made it until Friday, but then he tweeted at the accuser attacking her basically saying, if this was so serious and this happened, how come she didn't go and report it to the the police at the time? Or how come her, quote, loving parents didn't do it? She didn't tell them and, you know, how come if it was so serious? And I'm sure there were a lot of expletives being screamed in the pillows at the White House when that tweet came out because that's exactly what they didn't want him to freaking do. Why not? Well, maybe because the fallout of that victim shaming Would be immense and it has been. The response has been terrible for the for the for the White House, for Trump, for Kavanaugh. Doesn't make anybody look good. And it started the hashtag, hashtag why I didn't report. And over the weekend, many, many people, celebrities, people we know, came out and said chronicled things that happened to them and why they didn't report it or why it took so long. That is the worst most people know that it's very difficult especially for women to come forward about a sexual assault allegation there have been countless studies done on this depending on the study up to 65% of sexual assaults are not reported psychology today has an excellent article out um, it's it's actually from November of last year but it, when the Me Too movement was first starting to come to, to come to light about why victims of sexual harassment don't come forward sooner, and it and it outlines eight reasons why they don't, and a lot of it comes from they're afraid of reliving the trauma. People process emotional trauma differently. Um, they're worried about being shamed. They're worrying about being embarrassed, not being believed, losing their jobs, retaliation. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. Um, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has received like 12,000 allegations of sexual assault. I mean, se- I'm sorry, sexual harassment every year. And like women are 83% of those complaints. That's a little bit different, sexual harassment in the workplace. But it's, you have to understand people process trauma differently. I can use personal experience, not experience, but my, I'll use an example of my own family. My mom, she, and I mentioned this on CNN over the weekend. My mom was sexually assaulted by a doctor when she was in her 20s. Well-respected doctor in our hometown. She, it was, he was a primary care doctor. She went in for a cold. He tried to give her a vaginal exam and she shoved him against the wall to get him off her. And she ran out of there and never told a soul why I asked my mom. Now my mom is no wallflower. She produced me. Okay. (laughs) So my mom is not someone who isn't afraid to stand up, but she assessed the situation at the time and said, I'm not saying anything. No one's going to believe me. I mean, he's a prominent, well-known doctor. I'm a 20 something single mother of a biracial child. And I, I'm not trying to get ripped apart. And at the time, my grandfather was actually captain of the police department of our hometown. So, and my, yet my mom still chose not to say anything. It just, she just, put it, just pushed it aside and decided to just, 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 we'll just let it go. You're embarrassed. You feel shamed. So for all those people out there that are quick to pass judgment on women who don't say anything, well, how come? Because there's a lot of women that have been doing that. CNN had a segment over the weekend that I re- reacted to of these freaking Trump women blaming uh, Christine Ford and, and going on and saying, well, how come she didn't say anything? Or, well, I would have said something and, and saying how, um, I mean, it was just ridiculous. And I thought to myself, man, A, women need to stop eating their own. B, what is wrong with these people? They're just so tribal that they can't see the forest through the trees and they just retreat to their corners and a, they're like cult members. I will continue to say that because that's the way people are freaking acting with this Trump situation. And it, was, it, turned, my, it turned my stomach, made me sick to my stomach because we, many people know someone or someone who knows someone who has been a victim that may have never said anything. So, you know, people need to stop being so damn judgmental about this. I'll give another example. Someone very, very close to me, who I will not name, was sexually molested by a family member when he was a kid. He had no recollection of this. None. Because the emotional trauma was so great. When was it discovered? While he was in therapy at 60 years old. At 60. So I don't want to hear it from these people who are saying who are saying that, you know, it, it, it makes Christine Ford's accusations less credible because she didn't say anything for 35 years or 30 years. That's bullshit. And Republicans need to stop taking that posture. They really do. And especially these women that are going out there trying to defend this. Or Franklin Graham. How about that? An evangelical. Shame on him, too. And all the rest of them. Saying, well, basically, if this happened, so what? It happened so long ago. What? Yeah, God's really pleased with that. Yeah, he's real pleased. I I just shame on all of them. It's despicable. It really, it it really is despicable. So we'll see by the time we get back together next week for, for the next episode, a lot of shit is probably going to have gone down. Um, and I, I just, it's just, it just saddens me all of it, all of it. But I think Kavanaugh should withdraw. I think there should have been an investigation of some sort. Anita Hill got an investigation the request of the White House, it lasted three days, and they reported back. Christine Ford deserves at least that. So we'll see what happens in that arena. What else is going on? Well, um, Rod Rosenstein, that name may sound familiar. He is the Deputy Attorney General, the number two guy under Jeff Sessions. But what makes Rosenstein important is he's the guy that oversees the Mueller investigation, the special counsel investigation with Robert Mueller. He oversees that. And he has been under fire for a long time. Obviously, Donald Trump doesn't like him. He wants the Mueller investigation to go away. He's been trying to make it go away, but he knows he can't because then it looks even more like obstruction of justice. So Rosenstein's been walking a fine line for a long time. Rod Rosenstein was also the guy who wrote the memo that the White House initially tried to use as the reason why the FBI director, James Comey, was fired last year until Trump went uh, two days later on with Lester Holt and said, well, that Russia thing was on my mind. And regardless of any recommendations, I was firing Comey anyway. (laughs) So Rosenstein got set up with that, with the memo. But Rosenstein has been known as a straight shooter. He was uh, well respected by both Republicans and Democrats. He was a U.S. attorney for Maryland, uh, the state of Maryland. He's a career lifer at the Department of Justice. And he's the guy that, basically appointed Mueller for the special counsel investigation into the Russia collusion and obstruction of justice stuff. And he's also the person who says yay or nay to what Bob Mueller is doing in the scope of this investigation. So he yields a lot of power here. And he, why was he in that position? Because Jeff Sessions had to recuse himself. Normally the attorney general does all this, but it was unusual because Jeff Sessions recused himself. Trump is still pissed about that. Um, But Sessions had to recuse himself. Why? Because he didn't disclose some contacts he had with Russians during the campaign during his nomination hearings. So he felt it was prudent after after um, consulting Department of Justice lawyers about what to do when that came to light. And they said, you got to recuse yourself, buddy. So he has. Trump has never let him live it down. We see the constant assault that Trump uh has on on sessions but that has always left pressure on rob rosen on rosen rod rosenstein because he controls the Mueller investigation well most republicans felt that rosenstein was safe because it would be insane for trump to fire him because that would really be obstructing obstruction of justice well now it came out in a new york times story that rosenstein allegedly made reference to potentially getting people together or proof to invoke the 25th Amendment to forcibly remove Trump from office because he was unfit and that he proposed wearing a wire to try to prove that. This was shortly after the chaos of Comey being fired and Rosenstein and McCabe, you know, McCabe, Andrew McCabe, who has since been fired from the FBI. He was the acting director. There was a lot going on that week in May of 2017. Rosenstein denies that he was serious about this. And people who were in the room say, yeah, he said it, but it was in jest, which it probably was. Um, Andy McCabe says no, because he took notes at the time. He handed those notes over to the special counsel. Lisa Page, another character in this saga over there, she was a lawyer at the time. She has notes where apparently McCabe made a reference to this stuff. Again, some people say, It was in jest. Well, this just like fed right into Trump's narrative of the deep state and how there's a cancer over there at the Department of Justice and the FBI. Everybody's out to get him. So now this is a firestorm around Rosenstein. Does this give Trump cover to fire him now? I don't know. Maybe. I don't think Rosenstein should be fired. He's one of the adults in the room that's holding this whole freaking mess together. Um... But there's a lot of bad blood between McCabe, who is in some trouble for his behavior over there and leaks to the media and why he got fired. And is he out to get Rosenstein? I don't know. Maybe he thinks he doesn't want to go down with the ship by himself. So Rosenstein went to Monday morning. Rosenstein, it was speculated that he was he he was offering to resign or that Trump was going to before Trump could fire him. There was this big dramatic meeting at the White House, a lot of speculation on Monday. What the hell's going on? Is Rosenstein out? Well, we still don't know. Now it's a couple days he's supposed to meet with Trump again on Thursday. So Thursday of this week, depending on when you're listening to this, we may or may not know what the resolution is this whole thing with rosenstein what happens though why does this matter well it matters because of the russia investigation if rosenstein goes then who takes over well the solicitor general takes over this guy named noel francisco who's the solicitor general probably a lot of you don't even know what the hell a solicitor general is or what he does well the solicitor general is basically the lawyer for the government of the united states they represent the u.s government in front of the supreme court to make it simple interesting fact about this position is that's the position that Kellyanne Conway's husband, George Conway, was reportedly offered and turned down. (laughs) Just a little side note there on that. But yeah, so the Solicitor General would have to come in and take over the investigation. I mean, it's terribly complex. There are so many moving parts on this. But this is something that we should certainly keep an eye on. We've got to keep an eye on this. I don't think it's a good idea if Rosenstein goes. That that it that raises a whole lot of other questions about who how this Noel Francisco would conduct himself in this investigation. Would it put it on pause? it it could be a huge, huge, huge mess. But that's actually a good segue into who um my guest is this week, which is Phil Mudd. And we pre-recorded this interview before the Rosenstein news, which Um, Or else I would have asked him about it. But Phil Mudd, for those of you who don't know, he is a 25, 30 year veteran of the intelligence community. And he's also a CNN contributor. That's how I got to know Phil. And I've watched him um, over these last few months. He's a no nonsense kind of guy. And I appreciate that because I'm no nonsense. So I appreciate that he tells it straight. And given his experience, I I find him to be a fascinating character. And some of you also may have become familiar with Phil Mudd because he had a rather spirited, let's say, exchange on air with a fellow, another fellow CNN contributor, but no more, Paris Denard, who attacked Phil Mudd's integrity, questioning him um, profiting from his security clearance. When Trump was pulling people's security clearances, total political move, claiming they were making all this money off of it. Yeah, OK. Paris Sennard doesn't have one iota of experience in the intelligence community, yet he's attacking Phil Mudd on air, questioning his integrity on that issue. And Phil basically lost it with him. <laughs> it told him to get out, Um, you know. He, uh, he talks about that. I asked him about what happened there, and um, I think you'll find his response interesting. Phil Mudd is a CNN counterterrorism analyst. He joined the CIA in 1985 as an analyst specializing in Southeast Asia and then moved over to the Middle East. He began work in the CIA's Counterterrorism Center in 1992 and then served on the National Intelligence Council as the Deputy National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. After a tour as an executive assistant in the front office of the CIA's analytical arm, Mudd went on to manage Iraq analysis at the CIA from 1999 to 2001. After that, he went over to Afghanistan after 2011 to help the Afghan government try to build something um, after we went in and took out the Taliban. Um, He also became the deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center in 2003 and served there until 2005. And then he also became the, um, he, well, actually he worked with FBI Director Robert Mueller. He was appointed to the FBI's National Security Branch in 2005 and became the FBI's Senior Intelligence Advisor. So the bottom line is that Phil Mudd has been around the block. He knows counterintelligence. He knows counterterrorism. He knows the intel community. He's been doing it for almost 30 years. And I'm really Really happy to have him on as my guest this week. Uh, he's a smart guy, no bullshit, and that's what we like here on Honestly Speaking with Tara. So without further ado, my conversation with Phil Mudd. Welcome to the incomparable badass, in my opinion, Phil Mudd. Thank you so much for joining me on Honestly Speaking. I'm so excited again to have you as as a guest. I say that every week because my guests have been so cool, but you <laughs> um, have, are a different kind of cool to me, just given your background, what you do. You're like a real life Jack Ryan, in my opinion.
1: I wish I don't have a salary. <laughs> I will say it's going to be a good conversation because I've already done my 10,000 steps today, so anything after that is downhill. <laughs>
0: Oh my goodness well, that's a lot to say, considering that this conversation is happening before noon um I, I that's motivation for me. I think I need to learn how to how to do that, but I guess that comes from years of discipline um, <laughs> so given your background and you know i I wanted to start we have, there's so many Um, things to talk about with you. But um, given your background working with um, the CIA, the FBI, I mean, you've you've worn many hats and many roles, very important ones. You've had some things to say about the role of the FBI in this Kavanaugh situation. I mean, this has been in the news now that the nomination is off the rails. Um, and the big issue now has become, we have this accuser, Dr. Ford. She was demanding an FBI investigation before she testifies. And there's been some back and forth about, well, is this the role of the FBI? Is it not the role of the FBI? What's your opinion as a veteran FBI guy?
1: Slow down, slow down. Um, uh, there's, there's a couple of, uh, real basics here we can cover in just a moment and, and that is the first the white house and I've, I've i've been the subject of background investigations obviously as a formally at the cia and the fbi but the white house requests a background investigation when they nominate somebody in this case the supreme court justice the background investigation is completed and obviously again in this case information came out after the background investigation that the fbi might not have known about although we don't know for certain whether any of this was aired because we don't know what was in the background investigation now this is where we have to slow down the congress typically another obviously branch of government doesn't tell the executive branch how to conduct a background investigation so if we wanted the white house pardon me the fbi to reopen it typically the uh, the white house and i think in some circumstances they would do this the white house might go back to the fbi and say hey Can you relook at this? For example, in my background investigations, if it had come up afterwards that somebody said, you know, back 15 years ago, he was a habitual drug abuser, I could see the White House saying, you know, we need to reopen this one. Um, The Congress doesn't have to ask. We'll ask. Now, that said, let's say President Trump says we do need to reopen it. You can't do that in a day or two. In this case, it might appear that you only have a couple of people who are involved. That is the uh, the victim and the the individual she's accused. But you're going to want to talk to people over the years whom the woman has spoken with. You're going to want to talk to them maybe multiple times if stories don't corroborate. So if somebody thinks, say, hey, this is just a couple of interviews and we can do it in a couple of days, if you want to reopen it, you got to do it seriously. And that would take a bit of time. I don't think the president will do that. I'd bet a paycheck against it, but that's what I would do.
0: Now, I mean, for the layperson, they, I think that they're getting confused about the difference between a, opening a formal formal criminal investigation, and they're saying that, oh, it's not the FBI's jurisdiction, there's nothing federal here, versus the point you just made about the background investigations. And and I think that that's a point that's been lost here, and maybe on purpose that the White House and, and Trump and some of the Kavanaugh allies are trying to mix that up because they don't, it seems to me they don't want anything reopened. They don't want people reinterviewed because maybe there's a possibility hmm, that the accuser's telling the truth.
1: I think you're dead on. I, I, I think in a lot of these difficult situations, one of the challenges for people outside the Washington Beltway is to get, for, forget about the politics of it, some simple facts. The Congress has said, and this is true, the Congress has said we don't direct... The FBI had to conduct reinvestigations and whether to reinvestigate the part. They're obviously missing is since the White House directed the initial investigation, they could clearly go back to the FBI and say, wow, do you want to look at this again? So when the Congress and congressional Republicans rightly say, you know, we can't order reopening this there, they got a paragraph that says yes or no. Did you ask the president to reopen it? They choose not to. I understand why they're doing this. But it's they're sort of selling the American people only half the story.
0: The Congress politicians only selling people half the story for political expediency. No, that doesn't happen. That it's, doesn't
1: happen. It's funny. You know, proud to be. I've been a former deep stater. People like me would say the Congress doesn't really care about what they have, what I have to say. You know, all they care about is the politics of it. And, of course, the politicians are saying, this is a CIA guy. He's going to lie to us. (laughs) So I guess that's part of the checks and balances. It comes (laughs) with the game.
0: Uh, You recently, you were on CNN. For those of you who don't know, Phil and I are CNN colleagues, uh, which is how I was able to score some of Phil's time, because I'm sure he's very judicious with who he talks to, being a a former deep stater. Um, But you were on CNN recently talking about this, and you used a term which I think really sums up a lot of what the Trump administration is doing with the Department of Justice, with the FBI. You said that it's irresponsible the political weaponization of the Department of Justice. Explain what you meant by that.
1: Well, look, for, we're having a debate right now, for example, about whether there should be de- declassification of some of the documents related to the Russia investigation, per- particularly the documents that led to surveillance of Carter Page. Mm-hmm. If you if you want to understand your uh, career as a journalist, or let's make this even simpler. Your years, four years as a high school student, you could look at one, one pop quiz in your junior year as a high school student and say, this is a picture of how you performed. I would argue, having seen complex investigations, that Carter Page, who is like chump change in a sofa, the guy is not a significant player. The information related to Carter Page and the information that led to his surveillance is significantly less than 1%, maybe one-tenth of 1%, maybe even less than that, of the investigation. Think Paul Manafort. Think General Flynn. Think about the investigation involving uh, all the Russian entities that were involved in hacking. I mean, Carter Page is nothing. My point is, by declassifying a little bit of information related to Carter Page, It's like saying, I'm going to judge your entire high school career based on one pop quiz. It's purposefully misleading the American people by saying, and maybe the Carter Page uh, FISA documentation, that is the documentation that led to surveillance of his email, for example, is flawed. I would still say, are you going to use that to tell me the entire investigation is flawed? That's a bit much. If I fail the pop quiz, it doesn't mean I fail high school.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy because I think we can all relate to that, right? Nobody wants to be judged on one thing in one s- snapshot in time of their entire careers, but it's to put it in perspective about this the this breadth and scope of this Russia collusion investigation. This started way before Carter Page was uh, Carter Page's FISA warrant was approved, right? I mean, yeah. it started months before that with other. Other reasons, whether it was George Papadopoulos drunkenly bragging in a bar to a to a dipl- Australian diplomat about the Russians approaching him, or the fact that our, how about the fact that our counterintelligence actually surveils these Russian people and notices, hmm, maybe there's something shady going on here. We have reason to keep an eye on what the Russians are trying to do. I mean, people are just assuming that the, the Trump administration has is is attacking our intelligence community in a way that I believe is unprecedented, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's also to create this doubt that what they did was legitimate because he has something to hide. I, I just find it hard to believe that he's just doing this in good faith.
1: I think there's a simpler explanation and why when I watch the president operate, if, when I speak, people will think I'm anti-Republican. I don't think the president's a Republican, and my comments about him are not only temperament and judgment, they're about simple maturity. Mm-hmm. For example, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, you could have taken the path, and I would have said this would have been okay, to ask the inspe- to ask the attorney general, who's obviously very close with the president at this moment, but to ask the attorney general to say, can you have an inspector general investigation of whether the Carter Page FISA was legitimate? That's a very mature, very disciplined approach, But it's also a – that's that's an incredibly powerful weapon. I would bet you a paycheck that if the president had done this, he'd have to be patient, but the inspector general might come back with a document that says, wow, this was not exactly a pretty process. That's using the system legitimately, maturely to say I have questions about the investigation of politics in this country. Instead, the president has said – I'm the head of the executive branch, and every time the – I don't like what the executive branch does. Department of Justice, Department of State, Rex Tillerson, uh, FBI, CIA, Director of National Intelligence. Every time they do something I don't like, I'm going to say if I don't like it, it's therefore bad. I'm going to – as the CEO of the government, what he's saying is don't trust government. And I'll close by saying if you're the CEO of government, people think of him as as the president as different than managing the government. It's the CEO of government. And you're 20 months into your administration, or whatever it is, 18 months in, and you can't manage the government. I'd say, what's your management capability? You're
0: supposed to run this place,
1: homie. What are you
0: doing? <laughs> well, if you want, to, isn't that why the American people claim that they voted for Donald Trump because he was supposed to be this successful businessman, this amazing manager? Uh, look at look at the success, successes of his businesses. Uh, no, the guy filed for bankruptcy four times. He ran Atlantic City into the ground. He's anything that he's ever run by. By himself, he's running into the freaking ground, and he's doing the same thing to the presidency and this government. And people were duped into this celebrity guy and and the persona that he put forth. It was all a facade, all a facade. And the way he's managing the presidency and this country is the same chaotic, incompetent way he ran his businesses. He's a great marketer, terrible yeah. businessman, you know. But that's an aside. You bring up the the, the inspector general, and I'm glad that you did that. You know, we're, we're government people. We understand how these things work. The average person has no idea that the inspector general is basically like the internal affairs division of every single uh, cabinet agency. They're like the internal investigators. If there's a problem, you go to the inspector general, you have them uh, investigated. The inspector general, there was an inspector general report into the Hillary Clinton investigation. And that's how we uncovered a lot of um, some of the problematic comments and things, the text messages, the whole Lisa Page and Peter Struck stuff, and Andrew McCabe, the, all of that was uncovered through the process. But yet, the but the president of the United States doesn't seem to, only seems to trust that when it's convenient for him, but doesn't do that in a mature way, like you said, when it comes to things that could potentially be harmful to him, and that's a problem. Because it's, you know, you bring that up about the inspector general, Trump actually tweeted on Friday. Uh, about this declassification issue. Because here we are again now um, with the Trump going going after the FISA process and claiming that his, his campaign was unfairly surveilled and that there's this big grand conspiracy across the government. He said that he met with, this, this is his tweet, I met with the DOJ concerning the declassification of various unredacted documents. They agreed to release them, but stated that so doing may have a perceived negative impact on the Russia probe. Also, key allies called to ask not to release. Therefore, the inspector general has been asked to review these documents on an expedited basis. I believe he will move more quickly on this and hopefully other things which he is looking at. In the end, I can always declassify if it proves necessary. Speed is very important to me and everyone. What do you say about that? Sounds to me like he got some serious backlash.
1: Oh, yeah, but hold on a second here. For a guy who's supposed to be a brilliant manager, you got to sit there and say, maybe... I should have actually looked at the documents and asked ask, ask people who are familiar with the documents to determine whether there's more we can declassify. Instead, he tweets out and says, I'm going to declassify them." And somebody has somebody has to say, wow, you know, there are implications to that. I mean, come on. There's a process that you could have used that would have actually, whether you like the president or not, empowered him. If he had gone into the front end and said, I think these are overclassified. I've asked the inspector general to do that via the, the uh, attorney general. He looks like a good manager and he gets what he wants at the back end anyway. I, I object to the guy's temperament and judgment. The, com, the, the, the issues that he raises regarding things like regulatory issues, tax issues, immigration issues, I think are fair conservative issues, but sure. the guy sure. has lost the ability to have a serious conversation about him, not because of politics, but because of temperament and judgment. He acts like an eight-year-old and I don't understand it because he could capture more of the American audience by being a little more mature. It's not a political statement. It's a statement about personality and temperament.
0: Which matters. And that's been at the core of my objection to Donald Trump from the very beginning. Um, You're 100% right on that. Temperament matters. Character matters. How you approach the tough decision-making when you're in the highest office in the land matters. And every single day, this president demonstrates that he's unfit based off of those things alone. And you're right. There are some policy areas that I agree with. This administration, we didn't need Donald Trump to get those policy wins. Any sane Republican could have accomplished that and more without the daily chaos chronicles. That's what I call this. It's the freaking chaos chronicles every day with this guy. And the consequences, not only domestically, but internationally are huge. And I just don't know why so many people don't get that.
1: If you look at FDR going through World War II, if you look at what Gerald Ford's temperament was through what I thought was the right decision, which is pardoning Richard Nixon in an incredibly stressful time. If you look at the challenge that Ronald Reagan posed to 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 the Russians, if you look at the temperament. Uh, whether you like him or not, the cool temperament of Barack Obama on both sides of the aisle, Democrat and Republican, I can look at a child and say I can find examples from both sides of, of presidents who are respected saying, forget about their politics. You can act with that kind of seriousness, maturity. You can still have a sense of humor. Uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a common, again, and, and people pigeonhole me as a as a presidential attacker and su- suggest I'm a Hillary supporter. I thought she ran a horrible campaign. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. This is more about who this person is and not always necessarily how he thinks in policy terms.
0: That's right. Look at Kennedy during Bay of Pigs. You know, temperament matters. And I, I can't stress that enough. And the fact that so many apologists for Trump are throwing that quality out the window I'm always concerned about where that leaves us as a country moving forward. How much are we willing to tolerate and accept? I think we're we're going down a slippery slope here moving forward because there will be life after Donald Trump.
1: I don't understand it. I mean, Ronald Reagan is seen as the conservative standard bearer of our time, and he cut deals all the time. And, in fact, his chiefs of staff sometimes had to sideline ideologues to say we're going to cut a deal. That's right. That's right. I, one of the other, and I, I don't want to preach here, but give me 20 seconds, concerns I have is that now people, I think partly because politics has entered into culture. What do you think about gay marriage? What do you think about guns? People identify themselves by party. It's not just what you think about infrastructure or defense spending. It's what you think about who you are. And therefore, they think having a conversation with the other side is not great. Democrats and Republicans should sit down. The American people elected a conservative Republican should sit down and say, "Okay, let's think about limiting immigration in a thoughtful right way that respects American values. And and Democrats should say we lost that can't happen in this town anymore that that I you know, maybe I'm Pollyannish. So I think that used to happen a little bit more. I'm concerned that Americans have, have used party not only to define how they think about things like defense and education spending and infrastructure, but about who they are viscerally it is really unhealthy.
0: I think you're 100% right. And you know what? That, that is a really astute observation about where our culture has gone, where the politics and culture have intersected. And I attribute that back to the Jerry Springer era. I think it's become the Jerry Springerization of our political system and reality television as simplistic as that may seem but we have become such a voyeuristic society and it and even exhibitionist too on the other side of it with social media and the ability to just put everything out there whenever you want and shock value being rewarded, bad behavior being rewarded. And I think some of this started during the Clinton administration, well, Clinton's campaign. When uh, people may remember MTV used to have this rock the vote and they would do these town halls. It was back in the 90s they started this. And someone asked uh, Bill Clinton whether he wore boxers or briefs. And I, some people thought, you know, the progressives thought this was wonderful. He's so down to earth. This is great. And I thought about that and said, this is the future president in the United States. What the hell are we doing asking him about his draws? You
1: yeah, know, I, I, I agree with you. Beginning I mean, of the end, government should. Government should be an occasional conversation among people about things like like why are when I travel overseas you know a lot of airports are you know fly into JFK that's a hot mess <laughs> Laguardia is a better better example why is our infrastructure a little bit questionable bigger question we spend way too little time thinking about the education of kids in this country because we have this term American exceptionalism people hate this but we're not exceptional in terms of educating a kid and I do numbers look at American performance compared to OECD countries that's developed countries like Japan and and Western Europe. We're not great. And and we talk instead about things like you go back. You're talking about Clinton. Don't ask, don't tell. I'm like compared to whether a kid can compete with a peer in in Asia or Europe, we're doing don't ask, don't tell. You got to be. remember the flag issue back in the, in the Clinton. I'm like, I, I don't really care which side of it you're on. We should not be spending time on that when a kid gets a mediocre education in this country. I it just really irritates me. We don't do priorities well.
0: You're right, and um, you know Frederick Douglass said that education is the key to freedom, which is why I'm so passionate about uh, education, school reform. I mean, we're looking, we're 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 we kids are at a disser- they're doing a disservice to our kids and to future generations, the way that the education system is set up now. Uh, and and it, it's scary to me how uneducated, even just on basic civics and the role of government, how uneducated our, um, our citizenry is. And it's only getting worse because if people really understood the role of government, if they understood um, our constitutional republic and what that means and those responsibilities to be good citizens, I don't see how Donald Trump gets elected.
1: Yeah, you know, I'll make it even simpler. This is going to sound ridiculous, but you know, I spent my dear career doing counterterrorism, which means I should be thinking about ISIS and the formerly Al-Qaeda and what's happening in Syria. The biggest national security problem this country has, in my judgment, is education. Mm-hmm. And let me give you some simple reasons why. Number one, if you want global economic competitiveness in a globalized world, I'm not talking about borders, I'm talking about things like technology, communications. You got to compete with the Europeans and Japanese. We're middle of the road. If you want to ensure that we don't have social divides that lead to violence, education means that somebody's going to make more money and that they're going to be happier. and Furthermore, that you're going to spend less money on prisons. I could go on and I won't but I think people underestimate the uh, the impact of improved education on everything from whether you got to pay for prisons to whether you still have a Silicon Valley in 50 years that's the leader of the world I, and and then we spend time on whether we should unredact documents related to a stupid investigation I can I, I'm the national security guy I just I, I really don't care very much I'm getting old and cranky and you know <laughs> you
0: <laughs> No I I, I- I think that that's a perspective that not enough people look at, and and you know George W. Bush said something during the um, during the debates back in two thousand when he said that the biggest the soft bigotry of low expectations was a civil rights issue in this country, and I thought that that was a brilliant response. That is profound.
1: That is profound. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And that, live- that always sit that always sits with me when I look at the totality of where we are and when I look at it from a macro level it really does all go back to education and I don't know that George W Bush gets enough credit for making that statement and what and what the byproduct of that is the you know the impact of that I just don't know that he does because there you know his presidency was overshadowed by a couple terrorist attacks in uh, Iraq but
1: in Iraq, um, yeah. Also, it's AIDS important. investment. I mean, people underestimate what he did on AIDS in Africa. That's that right, PEPFAR. It's an incredible investment that saved maybe hundreds of thousands of lives. I right. mean, it's just—
0: It was like $50 billion, I, I think. It, was, it yeah. was an incredible investment that, yes, yeah. also is, is uh, underreported and underappreciated by a lot of folks, but not the ones who had helped directly. Um, I just want to get back a minute to, to the, the FISA issue. You're yeah, not going mean, to let me ramble anymore. <laughs> no, you can I love it. This is a gr- this is great cuz I don't think I think people don't get a, a chance to see this side of Phil Mudd. <laughs> and uh I'm glad I I love conversations like this because it's it also goes to show that what you see on television is not the full picture of who we are as people and what we do in our careers and what motivates us. And um podcasts and these kinds of venues give people an opportunity to see that we are real people, that we do have, there's, we have more to say than just what a five or seven or 10 minute segment gives yeah. us on CNN. So no, I love it. We can, we could keep talking about this. Um, but I didn't want to lose some of the, the, the facts about yeah. FISA in this conversation only because I, because people, when they, when they're trying to make a, a judgment call on what's happening They just don't know the facts about things. Can you just tell, explain what the process is to obtain a FISA warrant? First of all, what FISA is, how difficult it is to actually obtain a FISA warrant and how difficult, what the level of conspiracy would have to be if this was such a corrupt process as the president and his his acolytes claim.
1: Well, let me give you a scenario. I I wouldn't overestimate the difficulty. I don't want to pretend like you're jumping over a 10 foot bar, but I would say there is a process that's serious. I think some people think it's a rubber stamp that that would be, that's a mistake. I've been in front of the FISA court. I've talked to FISA judges. Let me make this real simple. One of the most intrusive things the government can do to you is to listen to your phone, but more uh, related to, to a lot of the FISA applications I saw to read your emails. So I've, if you want to read your emails obviously you got to go to an internet service provider and say i have a judge's order to read your emails." so think of your classic civics class the executive branch the fbi says i want to read your emails you've got to go to another branch of government judicial branch of government and say we have a case cause to read your emails to do that there's a standard process that process involves um explaining you take the case of somebody like carter page Why do you want to read somebody's emails? It could be an informant, somebody we trust, somebody who's significant, walked in and said Carter Page has been seen repeatedly in restaurants talking to Russian agents and we're concerned. There's some perspective around there. We know how Russian agents recruit people and this meets a classic uh, Russian profile. One thing we're missing that I'm curious about since I'm not in anymore. How did the Russians talk about this? We have no idea. My point is the executive branch, the FBI, via Department of Justice, Department of Justice lawyers look at this, put together what we used to call a package. That's a document. You go to a series of federal judges. Those judges sit on a secret court called the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Court. They look at the package that the executive branch, the FBI, and the Department of Justice put together, and they say, is this good enough to read your emails? The bar isn't perfect, but the bar is not – some people characterize this as a rubber stamp because the uh, the secret court routinely approves these applications. I'll give you a different perspective. The reason why they routinely approve them is the Department of Justice and FBI do not want to bring them bad cases. They don't want to set a precedent that says the judge is going to spend three days reviewing every line of this uh, to a level of perfection because 70 percent of the time, we bring in flawed cases. They want the judges to say, boy, they don't usually bring us bad stuff, so we're going to look at this, but we're going to come in with a history saying the FBI and DOJ bring in good cases. That's, that's the process that I saw.
0: And wouldn't you say that that process, that multi-level process, the fact that it's seen by many eyes before approved, would that be considered a built-in safeguard to this? The integrity it, of the process is the, is the safeguard.
1: Yes, sort of. I, I, but I want to be an analyst. I want to be agnostic. Yes, I think when we see the Carter Page stuff, I, I'm curious about it because I'm curious about whether uh, there was a judge who didn't spend enough time looking at the package or whether there is a story that the FBI told that was a little bit thin you got thousands of FISA applications a year. I'm not going to read too much into that. I'm sure the president's going to tweet that this shows the Department of Justice and the FBI are corrupt.
0: Oh, he's already not done
1: sure it. Pack- I'm not sure every FISA package is perfect. The ones I saw were typically counterterrorism. So a kid in Atlanta or Chicago or New York is getting into trouble. We're going to go read his email. I would say, and I, I know I have some bias, I would say if the American people sat over our shoulder for some of the 7.15 a.m., 7.30 a.m. threat reviews we had with the director, they'd say, it's perfectly fine to read this kid's email. I I didn't see uh, cases that made me uncomfortable. And I'm an American citizen first and a CIA, FBI guy second. I I remember thinking if the American people saw this, they'd be (laughs) – they're like, I, I'm a little nervous.
0: <laughs> right, okay. right. If you only knew the half is what oh, my grandmother it, used to say all the time. Oh, if you only God. knew the half. Um, but th- that actually leads me to the question about the uh, the flip side of it. You know, the, the administration will say, look, Trump is doing this for transparency purposes. You know, the civil libertarians have been out there complaining about the government overreach in the surveillance era since the Snowden uh, revelations. You know, the whole, is he a patriot or or a traitor with the Snowden revelations and what the NSA was doing? W- so what do you say to those people? Hey, the government has too much overreach. They're, they're snooping around. You know, it's like the movie, The Enemy of the State. They can, you know, they're abusing their abilities and violating our, our civil liberties. What do you say to those folks?
1: Well, they probably are, but there's a simple solution that a mature president would take that allows him to have his cake and eat it too. That is, I I mentioned the inspector general. For people who think inspectors general, that is the internal inspectors at places like the FBI and Department of Justice, are soft. Look at what the inspector said about James Comey. Mm -hmm. They crushed him. They did. They crushed him. When I was at the the CIA and the FBI, we despised – I didn't say disliked. I said despised the inspector general. Let me give you an everyday characterization. When the IRS walks in and says, we want to investigate your tax returns, do you say this is a pretty good government oversight that I want to cooperate? Or do you say, I can't stand these guys because they're nitpickers. Think about the inspector generals as your version of the IRS walking in your house saying, we're going to look at every every tax return you filed over the past five years. And if you don't have documents, we're going to presume that maybe you're guilty. The president could have put this process into, for example, an expect- inspector general or allowed the Congress to investigate. And if you don't think the Congress can investigate, look at some of what they've done on the intelligence community over the years. They crushed us. Mm-hmm. And then the ba- at the back end, he's going to get a document that says the government, let's take Carter Page, for example, the government overreached. And he's going to say, I didn't say it. I've got a document that says Jim Comey really did the wrong thing. He should be hammered. Instead, he goes out without ever reviewing a document, without ever using the process, and he looks perfectly partisan. He looks like an idiot. And now today or yesterday, he comes out and says, now we sort of have to reconsider what I said yesterday. I'm not sure we can review or release all these documents. He looks like an idiot. He's not running the government. He's running the Trump campaign. You
0: know, the end- <laughs> The, the, the idea also about um, the importance of, of these types of, of processes to surveil and surveil our potential enemies and to protect this country, I mean, that's the, that's the bottom line of why we're supposed to be doing this. It's not, I would hope that most people's motivation isn't to be, you know, some evil cabal. It's to keep this country safe. Um, in your experience dealing with both the FBI and the CIA, you know, leading up to 9-11, that we talk about the wall of separation. Where yeah. there was a dif- difficulty communicating certain information between the FBI and the CIA, and some folks thought that creating this wall of separation was a good thing because of the different mandates each agency had. Um, do you? How did you feel about that? Since you were there uh, at the time, was the wall of separation something real? And I don't know if you've read um, Lawrence Wright's book *The Looming Tower* or saw yes, the Hulu, yes uh, the Hulu series, yeah, which I thought was amazing. Um, it really talks about that, you know, leading up to 9/11, where some things were missed. Do you think that that's, that the wall of separation issue was overstated? And do you no. think what lessons have we learned since then?
1: No, I don't think it was. I think one of the Reasons people like me my friends who are still in government. I have I haven't been in for a while and I will never go back again Um, One of the reasons you get paid when I was a junior officer I'm like why do these senior people get paid? They don't do anything. We worker bees. We do everything is Judgment and experience. I used to counsel managers who work for me. You don't get paid for time You get paid for judgment and experience My judgment and experience is that there is an ebb and flow in everything in government, including how intrusive the government is, sort of the the, the pendulum swings back and forth. The government was too careful before 9-11. Too careful. Afterwards, the pendulum swung in the other direction. The message we got, and this is one reason you've got CIA secret facilities was, I don't care what it takes. And read Dick Cheney, if you think the CIA overreached, the vice president, the president told us what to do, and they were elected by the American people, and the Department of Justice told it was legal. The American people said, do anything to ensure we don't have to go back to this. The pendulum swung in another direction. Well, sure. When
0: you have 3,000 dead Americans sure. and t- towers coming down, the Pentagon attacked, uh, that's what happens. People out of reaction go, well, the hell with this shit. We don't Correct. want this happening again. And that, then you, exactly you know, that's right. The pendulum and, swing the other and, way, and that's- and then a
1: few years later, people, including at the Department of Justice, but later at the White House, start to say the CIA went too far. And people like me say, you know, uh, when the pendulum goes too far to the left or too far to the right, it's always going to self-correct because of the, the brilliance of what the constitutional writers did. And they said the Congress will investigate the people will speak when they vote for people. They vote for Barack Obama instead of uh, instead of George Bush. In my world, one of the first things Barack Obama did was to say we will never hold prisoners like that again. So the process works. But you, but at the at the fringes, you know, after nine eleven, for example, the pendulum is going to swing far right. And if you look at polling data, people would say that's what I want. I still have. Despite the, the hate mail, I get very few regrets about what we did after 9 11. That was going to be my next
0: question. Did, did, did you feel, I mean, we look back, hindsight's 2020, 20, right? Did you feel, as being someone on the ground, that the criticism about rendition and the black sites and all those things, do you feel that that criticism was uh, warranted? Or do you think that, like, if you had to do it all again, would you do it the same way? Or I would not do
1: it the same way, but I hesitate to say that's because when I say that people come up and especially people who have confirmation bias, in other words, people who don't like what we did and say, oh, you're with us. You think what you did was wrong? And I'm like, no, that's <laughs> not what I said.
0: Mm-hmm. There's I nuance.
1: Said, There's, and, and it's pretty basic. For example, I think we should have notified more members of Congress because that some of them are off the hook by saying, well, we didn't know enough. The members, and I, I did some of the briefings on our black sites to members of Congress. They either said nothing or said, great. And now, and I will never name them to my grave. Now they're like, ah, this is, I, you know, the CIA was doing horrible things. I'm like, well, we told you. <laughs> you didn't tell us how many times you waterboarded Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And my answer is, so if we waterboarded him 20 and not 150, you would have said 20 is okay? Oh, come on. Right. We should have gone to Congress every time we're doing a waterboarding. But I I think there are some things around the edges. Many of us would would say, including in particular congressional notification. But I don't lose sleep. I don't really care when people send stuff saying you must hate yourself and you don't represent American values. The American people told us what to say,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: to think. And it wasn't because I thought I was elected. It was because the people they elected told us. And the people who interpreted the law told us. And then later, years later, despite what you see on the East Coast and West Coast, polling data told us that most Americans still thought it was right. I'm like, really? Every time I go someplace on the East Coast, people say, you guys are horrible and you didn't represent us. And right. I now realize people say, well, thanks for what you did. And we don't. Right. Well, that, about-
0: you know, those are those East Coast liberals. The coat, you know, the left and East Coast liberals that are have the luxury of being sanctimonious from their ivory towers. Some yeah, would say, I- right? I- I- so, you know,
1: <laughs> I'm pretty liberal, actually. Believe I just, I'm just a realist. So, you know, here's the deal: this is what we did. If you don't like it, we'll change it, and then let's do the next thing.
0: You know what I call it? I call people like you and and people like me that have the ability to kind of sift through the the extremes. I call ourselves pa- pragmatic patriots. Um. So when you look back and a little bit on a little bit of a lighter note, uh, you know, there's a lot of movies that are made about this and there's a a certain Hollywood sensationalism about being in the CIA or what we do. And, you know, depending on which side you're on, that there's a narrative about the big, bad, evil, torturing CIA officers, Um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, uh, but of all the movies you've ever seen out there that have been made about this, are there any or is there one that comes That is the most realistic. Like my husband, he's, well, I'm I'm not, he's going to use that example, but I, my husband is a federal law enforcement officer. And there are movies that he says are the most realistic or closest to what he deals with on a daily basis. Um, are there any for you? Because I know that, you know, we as laymen watch this and say, oh, my God, that's really cool. You know, is it Jack Ryan? Is it, uh, you know, um, the 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 Bin Laden movie? You know, what is there anything that comes close to accurate for what you guys actually do?
1: OK, you would think we stage this. You're not going to believe this. I don't own a TV. I don't have Wi-Fi, I don't do Netflix, and I don't go to the movies. I've never seen Homeland. I, I do have a few books, I know people don't read, so I don't know any, I don't know Jack Ryan. I don't I'm know I'm just using anybody.
0: that as an example because it's most recent, and I just finished binge-watching it.
1: <laughs> but I've never seen The Americans. I don't watch TV, it's yeah. because it's not one of But let me list a few things. If you wanna see reality, uh, let me list four. Read Agents of Innocence. Read Alan first. Read early John Le Carre, and read Steve Call, C O L L. Those are four people who write. They're, some of that's fiction, and and it's not boring stuff. They all write really well. Yeah. Um, those are four people I'd read to say these guys are pretty darn good uh, with what they do. But I, I, you know, people come up all the time. You know, what do you think of Homeland? And I'm like, I think it made a ton of money, but I don't really know what it is, I don't, I don't, I'm too much in wine cafes to (laughs) go (laughs)
0: <laughs> I joke that this administration has turned a whole lot of folks into winos because that's the only way to deal with it. It's the only way to deal with it. You need a stiff drink at the end of the day, whether it's a bottle of wine or a good stiff McAllen on the rocks. I, I, know, I, I, in, I feel you, you.
1: I lived in Europe a few times, and I mean, American people are so uptight. I'll go out for lunch and have a glass and be like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I lived in Europe. This is how we live. get over it. That's <laughs> you know? right.
0: That's right. The two martini lunch thing is nothing compared to, to Europe. We start drinking at like 11 o'clock. <laughs> 11 o'clock in the morning with a good glass of wine
1: this country would be a better place if everybody in this town had two martinis Yeah, right this is is one uptight city
0: (laughs) um so that actually is a good it's another question my producer i asked him you know are there any questions you want me to ask phil mudd and he asked me um he said yeah he goes ask him what does he do for breathing exercises and i said what he goes well look the guy has had unbelievably stressful jobs over over the decades of work and in intelligence. So he has to have something that he does to relax that's allowed him not to have a heart attack or a stroke yet. So what do you do to, re- what does Phil Mudd, who has knowledge about all of the worst things, threats that go on in this country, what you've seen, what you've done, what the hell do you do other than a glass of wine to relax and keep it together?
1: You want a real answer?
0: I wanted the real answer. Yes. This is honestly speaking. So speak honestly.
1: Um, Two things. One at a high level, one at a low level. The first is this is going to sound ridiculous, but you asked. I'm sorry. (laughs) Nothing's ridiculous. Your life is mind, body, soul. So soul, you know, I play with my little niece and nephew. I read a book. I drink a glass of wine. I exercise every single day. If it means getting up at 3.30 a.m., I'm going to exercise. And then you got to sleep. And finally, you got to eat right. You can't be eating hamburgers. So I always believed you've got mind, body, soul. You got to think about what you're doing. You have to exercise. You have to sleep. You have to eat right. At a, so that's a pretty tactical, you know, that, there's things I do every day. And I try to have elements of mind, body, soul every day. At a macro level, I'm sorry to be a philosopher, but five days after I die, nobody's going to remember what I did. Nobody's going to remember what decision I made. Nobody's going to remember. Get over it. Uh, and and if you can't get over it, travel to Bangladesh, Nigeria, travel to some difficult place and watch someone sleeping on the sidewalk on a piece of cardboard, and then explain why you can look in the mirror and say why something you're doing is so important. The answer is it's not. Mm -hmm. It's just not.
0: So don't don't take it so seriously. Learn how to take a step back, take a breath and appreciate life as it is.
1: Take your, yes, take your decision seriously. But we're most of us gifted with a roof, with warmth, with clothes, with friends, with food, and you're going to say, you know, uh, I couldn't get my I couldn't get my promotion today, and it's three months delayed. And I'm going to say, you know, you need to take a chill pill because if you want to travel to a place where somebody's making two dollars a day and sleeping on a piece of cardboard, yep, yep. and you're worried that you can't get promoted 30 days or 90 days early, you need to take a chill pill. Get over it.
0: I think that's great advice. P- too many people are unable to do that and they go through their lives uptight, constantly in anxiety, constantly worrying about what other people think and it it affects them every single day. And yeah, I, and you lose out on actually, the joy I, yeah. and beauty of life and yes, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think agree. that's great advice. Um uh, yeah. I'm really curious about your very interested in your work in Afghanistan. Because um, as as some people may or may not know, I did work for Congressman Dana Rohrabacher for almost seven years. And despite the lunacy that he's engaged in now... (laughs) I don't know. I don't recognize the, the guy that we see every day now, I, the, the the love affair with Russia and all the things that he's doing. It, it pains me to see this this path that he's gone down. But the Dana Rohrabacher I worked for was not the guy that uh, that we see every day today. But he was very interested and involved in Afghanistan policy since his days going back to working with Reagan as a speechwriter. Um, he's always had an interest in Afghanistan and i i know that part of of your work history you were on the ground post 9/11 to try to put the pieces back together with afghanistan yep. and yeah. just what compared to what you saw then compared to what it what's going on now um do you think that there's a possibility to win whatever that looks like in afghanistan and What did you see when you were on the ground there? What do the American people need to understand about the complexity of Afghanistan? Because it's complex.
1: I think the American people don't understand the real basics, whether it's Egypt or Syria or Afghanistan. If you walk around and your kid can't go to the market without fear of something like a car bomb, it changes your perspective. We think democracy is the end-all and be-all. If your kid can't be safe, democracy becomes secondary and security becomes primary. Mm-hmm. I see that again and again and again around. We have luxuries here, and because Americans don't travel enough, they don't understand how other cultures think. I think victory is achievable in Afghanistan, but my definition of victory has got to be a—it's maybe 170 degrees different than another American's definition of victory. When we were there uh, in the fall of 0201, pardon me, we were there because the American forces and intelligence were succeeding beyond our wildest dreams, and we're going to the, the government. the uh, The Taliban was falling, so who's the new government? Um,
0: and just to, just to put just really quickly to explain, after the after the towers fell, and we recognized almost immediately, we knew it was Afghanistan with you know um, Osama bin Laden, just based yeah. off of you know prior intelligence. We didn't send in a major ground force. That was primarily a special ops operation that went over there and took down the, 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 the Taliban. We're talking, what, a couple hundred special ops guys, right? NCI guys, yeah. That's right. October right. 01, yeah. Right. So you just, just to give people perspective that, it, you know— we were able to take those guys out relatively quickly, and now we had to pick up the pieces. So go ahead. You can pick the story up from there.
1: Yeah, to, to make it simple, I thought our mission was to ensure that a kid in New York or California wasn't threatened. In 17 years, our mission has become, how do we ensure that Afghanistan is a vibrant democratic society that respects things like women's rights?
0: The folly of nation building.
1: If you want to do that, you've got to invest hundreds, maybe, a billions, And you have to remake culture because, and by that, I think is the big, that means how people think. I think victory is saying, can we ensure that there's no reestablishment of a terrorist entity there that will threaten New York or Chicago or Los Angeles? And I would say negotiate with the Taliban because they represent the will of the people in a way we don't understand. And then people are going to say, you don't represent. Uh, the women's rights or kids rights or the ability to kid for, for a girl to be educated. And and my answer is we could do that. That doesn't represent how many Afghans think. And that represents a cost in American lives and dollars that I'd be blunt if I were a politician, I'm not paying it, not going to pay it. I might be willing to pay it if the Afghan people wanted it, because then you have a local partner who can do, it's not clear they do.
0: And it's still 17 years later. Exactly.
1: if If we do. It's like Cuba sanctions to get political for you. It's not that I think Obama did the right – did the perfect thing in terms of – but if you do something for 50 years and it doesn't work and you allow the Cubans to say, well, you know, uh, the Americans are the reason that we're in power because they're the – that – or they're our explanation for why we haven't succeeded. And furthermore, if you think that easing sanctions might mean capitalism moves in and corrupts in a good way communist society, why the heck would you want to do sanctions again? Mm -hmm. You know, I would say go in and let cruise ships in. And it's not because I like the Cubans. It's because as soon as they sniff capitalism, it's going to corrupt their the communist society. I, I think our debates are inherently unanalytic and simplistic. Now, now you're making me irritable. I don't know why.
0: <laughs> Uh-oh, that's it's it's, it's the, the cranko meter, cranky meter for Phil Mudd is turning it's, up. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, um, in in your because i'm just fascinated with uh, with i'm in fa- i'm fascinated with intelligence and and with people who do this for a living every day because i just don't think enough people are exposed to the gravity of 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 the work that intelligence officers do and because we are so spoiled that we that we live in such a safe society people just don't understand the gravity of it all and, and don't appreciate it and i and so uh, it's another reason why i i'm so thrilled to have you on and thank you for being so generous with your time what what would you say in your 30 years was your most challenging assignment and what was your most rewarding
1: i'm gonna bore you challenging is dealing there's with people fill
0: mud and boring do not go together <laughs> go ahead there's nothing boring about you
1: <laughs> challenging is dealing with people uh, to get personal uh, pe- dealing with people is not my strong suit and when you manage i don't care if you're at ibm or apple dealing with people and their egos and their angers and their a it's people are hard to manage and and b it was not something i thought i was great at so i know i'm going to give you an answer on the rewarding piece it's i hope a little more interesting but i know and i saw post 9 11 i saw a lot of complicated stuff including black sites and predator drone strikes and when i became a manager dealing with people was both professionally challenging and for me personally it's just not a strong suit i have in terms of rewarding You know, on September 12th of 2001, if you had told people there will not be another catastrophic attack in this country, they would have said, you're nuts. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. you had said that in 02, they would have said, you're nuts. As ugly as it was, the post 9-11, not only the tactical choices, but putting in place an architecture and and in some cases making decisions that we knew would be second-guessed. I'm glad more kids didn't go home without their parents. And I, I, th- I know we made mistakes. I know we did. Some of the black site decisions were mistakes. And
0: but, you've written a book about this that's and, that's coming out as well, right? About and, black sites in the, the CIA?
1: That's right. About how we made the decisions to get into the secret prison business, into the interrogation business. And it details, it's not a defense, it details some of the mistakes we made. But I don't know how many kids are going home today because the FBI or the CIA or the new DHS or the President made decisions, or President Obama President Bush or President Obama made decisions. You know, you're spoke in the wheel, but there, there's a kid who has a parent, and that's just an overwhelming sense of uh, we anticipated a lot more kids wouldn't have parents, mm-hmm. and that's just a profound. I don't think about it very much, you know. People come up and say thanks for your service. I'm like, well, I got paid for it, and I couldn't. I didn't have any other skills. I have an English literature degree, so I didn't like really have options. But you know, occasionally you sit back and say, maybe there's a kid who's who's got a parent, and we'll never know. And I think that's kind of nice.
0: Well, let me be the first to say thank you for your service because it it is warranted, and for you and the. Hundreds, even maybe thousands, of others who are unsung heroes in the intelligence community that have either done the work or are still doing the work today—they um, need to be thanked because they, every single day, you guys get up and make a decision to to do the, the kind of work that others can't do to keep this country safe. And and I think that 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 does warrant a thank you. So let me be the first to say that. And I know you're you too w- humble w- to to w- accept w- that, but I but it's uh, I understand why people thank you and more should. It's
1: – well, and and you're welcome. But, you know, for those who are watching the current difficult environment, w- regardless of where you are and, and saying, you know, how do people on the inside think, they go to work thinking they got a mission, and the mission is pretty straightforward. There's a kid who's got to go home with a parent. Mm-hmm. You got to do it. So – uh They'll keep going. I don't worry too much. People come up in airports and say, do you worry? I'm like, no, not really.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, well, if you're not worried, then I guess, you know, maybe, maybe we all shouldn't be, (laughs) we all shouldn't worry. I worry. I don't know. I worry sometimes, but but
1: anyway, so big deal. Don't worry (laughs) about
0: it. Oh my goodness. Um, One last subject before before I let you go, uh, because I'd be remiss if I didn't we didn't talk about this. Uh, The Mueller investigation. Yeah. Now, you worked with with uh, Robert Mueller for many years. And so you you know him. uh, You're familiar with the with the kind of person he is, the way that he conducts investigations. Uh, Do you think that a. The Mueller investigation is taking any longer than it should. Some people complain, why isn't this over with now? I try to explain to folks that these types of investigations are complex and they should be doing their due diligence. You can't rush this. But in your experience, do you think that, um, that the Mueller investigation is going to take years and years? Or do you think that Mueller is coming into the fourth quarter, as some are, some are speculating?
1: Boy, this is taking a long time. I would agree. I'm not frustrated, but I understand people. I'm not frustrated because I know and forget about the professional part. The guy is when you shoot a bullet from a rifle, it shoots straight. The guy I never saw him do anything that wasn't straight. He just and I don't mean always ethical. He was ethical. But I mean, here's the case. Here's how we're going to investigate the case. He was one of the more remarkable public servants I ever saw. I I mean, people say fourth corner. I think we're in overtime. But
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I I think there's a let me give you some basic reasons why typically in investigation you get to the core subjects later so that, you know, you get you talk to the peripheral subjects as the peripheral people like George Papadopoulos earlier so that you can get a picture in the investigation. You want to go in to somebody who's at the corner of the investigation already kind of knowing what the answers are. So when they're circling around things like interviews with the president, that tells me you don't interview the president at the beginning of the process. I'm not saying he's guilty or not guilty. I'm just saying he's obviously a core player in the campaign. He's the president.
0: Right, you work your way up. It's like a drug yes. case. You start with the guys on the corner, you get to the captains, and then you get to the big guy.
1: Yeah, so that suggests to me, uh, and not to mention the fact that they've been at this for a few years, which is a long time for investigation. The other thing is just, Mueller personally, he is not a patient human being. I'm not saying he's not meticulous. He is. I'm saying the man does not sit still and he does not hesitate to pull the trigger. I, I mean, I spent four and a half years with him, maybe a couple of thousand meetings. The guy does not want to sit around saying, well, what the hell? Let's look under this rock. I think one of the challenges they have here is every time they look under a rock, it leads to a different piece of I think it's Not just the complexity of the core investigation, is that because of uh, the finances that go back years Mm -hmm. with all these people, including Michael Cohen, that is really complicated to investigate. I think it's because avenues keep opening up. But let me tell you, the guy does not want to sit around doing this. Plus, I don't want to get too personal. He's 72 or 73 years old. This This is not his life.
0: Right. Right. Um, he could be he could be in Florida with, you know, drinking uh, my ties every day, getting the early special I, at five uh, o'clock. He doesn't need to be yeah. taking on a he huge do case life. like this.
1: But but so it's a linear guy who's sitting there saying, you know, and he's also he doesn't really do politics or media. So he's like, I'm sure it's the primary problem we have here is complexity. That's what I think we have. And it's it's not someone, It's I didn't like what Ken Starr did. It's not someone who's saying, we started with Whitewater and ended up with a blue dress. He's right. just like, this is really right. complex. And it keeps going, particularly the financial piece, it keeps going in different directions.
0: So how big of a get is Michael Cohen and now Paul Manafort, quote, flipping or offering this kind of information? I, I thought that this was a nuclear uh, event for Trump in this investigation, the fact that both of these guys uh, are talking. What do you think?
1: I didn't think, uh, this is, boy, now let me be clear, I'm guessing. I didn't think Manafort was as big as Cohen. And that's because I have a big bias here. I don't think the Russia story is gonna go to the White House. I think the money stories, and you saw that in the Manafort case, money stories potentially including members of the president's family, And those money stories do have a Russia implication. What kind of money did you take in from Russians? Is it dirty money? Is it money you declared? The same kinds of stuff you saw in Manafort investigation.
0: Mm -hmm. I agree. I've always said follow the money in this case. I think Cohen can explain
1: money better than Manafort. In in terms of both knowledge of what the the Trumps are doing and time. He's been involved with the family for a long time. So
0: he also has
1: access to a tremendous amount of documentation. So yep. if you would, I, but there's a lot of guesswork here. I do not think the president will ever be touched by an allegation that he was involved in some sort of cover-up related to Russia collusion. But money, that I wouldn't be so sure of.
0: Uh, I agree with you 100%. From the very beginning, I've always said that uh, follow the money with the Russia stuff. When when Trump went bankrupt for the umpteenth time, it was the Russian money. It was Russian money it's, that bailed him out.
1: And in, in my concern, given the way the president has led the American people to believe that they're poorly served by the Department of Justice and the FBI, then people say, well, why did you do the investigation? I'm going to come back saying this is like you would investigate any American citizen. You come up with a with a valid predicate. That is, you have a valid reason for opening the investigation. The Russians are talking about this. And then as you open the investigation, you find massive financial corruption. What are you supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Are you supposed to say mm-hmm. and also, even if you don't, that's a standard investigative practice. We go in your house and we find out be, because somebody says the dog is barking and we find an abused kid. What are you supposed to do? I'm not saying they're equivalent. I'm just saying what right. you're no, supposed to like say an
0: example because you, you're you looking yeah. for one thing, but then you see something else. Yes. And Mueller's mandate allows for that, which is something else that I think a lot of that's people exact.
1: You hit it. That's the second point I was he was told to do that. So what does he – not only would you do that as a standard investigative practice, if he didn't do it, if I were asking him, I would say, why did you ignore the guidance you were given? Because you felt political pressure, which is something Mueller doesn't do. So both in terms of guidance but in terms of standard investigative practice as well, what would you do? I'd ignore. Well, you better give me a darn good explanation of why. You were told to look at that stuff, and it showed up like mushrooms. It was (laughs) – I mean – it's not that complicated,
0: and that's why the President continues to hammer on no collusion, no collusion, because he does yeah. not want people to focus on what's happening over there and what's happening over and there th- the ancillary issues that come up that are coming up while Mueller's doing this investigation those are the things that are vulnerable for the for the president, and he knows it.
1: And he's setting up. If one of his family members, his son or son-in-law, gets busted, he's going to say, "I told you there was no collusion all along. This was a witch hunt. I'm partying. him." He's setting up. I told you they were corrupt. Yep. This is really, this is really not, not good. No. Not, this is not good it's juju. Insane.
0: And it's also taking the focus off of the fact that the Russians made a concerted effort to interfere in our elections. The New York Times just recently did a really good piece on how successful this operation actually was for the Russians and continues to be because they're so in chaos. I often talk about the reflexive control theory and what the KGB had done for years, trying to do this in other places in the world and in the U S also, but never so successful with the way of, of changing perception and and manipulating information. So people's perceptions change. I mean, this is the the Russians are very, they're very um, deliberate and patient, and they 've been doing this for a long time, and now it, it seems as though they 've had a success, so why they 're emboldened to keep doing it. How much of a threat are the are the Russians to our elections, and who else do you see on a global stage as being our most direct national threat if it 's not not the russians who who is it Is it North Korea is it Iran? Who is it?
1: No, I don't think North Korea and Iran are. I would put China at the top of the list because we we view ourselves as a global superpower. And in terms of strategic vision, economic power, military power, people talk about this as the Chinese century. I think their ability to execute a strategic plan with a leader, leader, that is President Xi, who's now cemented himself basically forever, they are really long thinkers with a lot of money and a lot of they focus on five years, 10 years, 30 years. We focus on next week. Right. Um,
0: and they're buying I, And that. This has been going on. And you're right. I agree with you about China. That's something else. When I worked with Congressman Rohrabacher, he was a big China hawk warning about this. Ever since we gave China normal trade relations back in 2000, this has been financing the Chinese military yep. and their hegemonic aspirations and it's allowed them to build wealth and buy up the world they're buying up Africa the West Indies they're yeah. buying up rare earth mineral mines these are all things that are strategically important to challenge the United States as a world superpower
1: I, on the Russian interference part I I there's two pieces of that interference with the electoral system which is a technical question I, I would focus on that obviously if I were government I think Department of Homeland Security is. On this issue of influencing the way the American people think, I, I mean, I look at the last election, I have a lot of friends who look at me and say, you know, now we keep seeing this, this is proving that, that, that Russia influenced the election in favor of Donald Trump and against Hillary Clinton. And my answer would be the American people watch debates. Watch the news every night. It's, I'm not persuaded that marginal pieces of propaganda affect whether or not the American people like Hillary Clinton. I think they didn't like her.
0: I, I, right. It didn't take the Russians for people not to like Hillary.
1: <laughs> so I divide this into perception management. Are the, are the Russians changing perceptions? I'm not certain. And electoral manipulation. I'd worry about that. That said, there's one piece of this that I, that I think is undersold. We keep, keep talking about collusion and Russian manipulation of elections. The most concerning thing about what the Russians are doing is the long view. They are not just manipulating elections. This is about trying to undermine American culture, to divert right. us by saying Black Lives Matter is a you know a white supremacist by trying to exacerbate divides to ensure that we're diverted. We are spending too much time focused on electoral manipulation and not enough time educating the American people. And this is why I think the White House should have taken the lead on this. And obviously they won't because the president won't. And telling the American people, please, here, we're going to talk to you every month about how people from the outside are trying to tell you to hate your brother. And we can't let that happen.
0: I, You know, that <clears throat> that's something that I've said as well. I, I Again, you hit the nail on the head with this. They are attempting to undermine our democratic norms, institutions, and ideals, yes. and that is what is the most dangerous aspect of all of this. And the fact that our president and his sycophants are engaging in this as accessories, willing participants in this attempt to undermine our democratic norms, institutions, and ideals is the part that motivates me every day to make sure that the American people are equipped with the facts that, that we sift through the bullshit because they're fed it every single day and that we s- to put a stop to it because we cannot continue down this path and we have to be honest about what's going on here. And I don't know that we're getting enough of that. Um, and if we're ever going to combat this and push back against this attempt to de- undermine our, our Republic, It starts with being honest and being fact-based and calling out the BS when it happens. And And I think you are a great example. You're one from the national security side and all, even more than that, just just overall philosophy. But you come from a perspective also that that tells people straight what's happening, why we should care, and what we should do about it.
1: Well, I find they're so tribal that when I speak, they'll say, you hate the president or you hate Hillary Clinton. They don't. We don't listen anymore. We're divided into, into a tribal society. And, uh, you know, for, for example, the facts about how, what a FISA is, I don't think most people say no. They would just say if the president says that it has to be right or if the president says it has to be wrong.
0: Right. And that's that's just a challenge. Scary. That's a that's a challenge that we we encounter every single day. And, um, you know, as we close, I, I you and I were, were having this discussion before we started, and I think this is a good way to close. Um, and I talk about what motivates me all the time. Um, but for what motivates you, I, I, I think. People should hear that going from being a, you know, super secret CIA, FBI, counterintelligence guy where you're used to keeping things quiet and not talking to the masses and just kind of putting your head down and doing the work to now being a a recognizable voice in the media. Where the the underbelly of what goes on in the intelligence community and and national security is now exposed, and you're one of the people that's talking about it. How do you balance that? What's that like now, going from one extreme now to the other, being in the public eye, and and what motivated you to 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 come out and start to be a public figure and talk about this stuff in the media?
1: It's pretty uncomfortable. Uh, it's not what I was trained to do. When I first started doing media, it was more you know there'd be a terror event. I don't find it difficult to separate out classified and unclassified. If I see a terror event, I feel like an old football coach. I can tell you, I don't know anything about what's happening inside, but I can give you some ways to understand this. And I thought as a translator, that was an interesting job to have. Um, I'm not a salesman, but CNN has been, you know, there's not a hard place to work for. Just intellectually, I find live TV really challenging it's so fast but when people don't see it it's so fast
0: it is it's like the nfl versus college football right you don't realize it's, how fast it is until think, you're on the field
1: <laughs> yeah it's just, but but you know in the past couple of years the cnn has asked me more questions that have a political dimension again as a national security guy i think it's it's uncomfortable i'm not sure it's the right role i think there is a fair debate about whether people like me should do this That said, I have been a private citizen for eight years, and I believe if somebody wants to ask me my opinion, as long as I have a a considered opinion, I have the right to speak. Some people have said, you you don't really have the right to speak. Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. And I also step back and say, at a personal level, I don't like getting lied to. That really ticks me off. Don't lie to me about somebody's birth certificate. Don't tell your, your press person to lie about who showed up. Who cares? Who cares how many? Don't get off a plane from a meeting with North Koreans and say we're already safer. Don't say you're the toughest guy in Russia ever. Don't say you never knew about a payout to a lady who does pole dancing. Stop lying to me. Stop. In a more basic level, stop doing things routinely that I would tell a six-year-old he gets a timeout for. That's not facetious. Stop using funny names for political opponents. Stop saying a political opponent should be locked up in a democratic society. Stop yelling every time you get angry. Stop misspelling words on Twitter, which is a former English major. But it's a a statement outside politics to say, I want the temperament, whether it's Jeb Bush or George Bush or George H.W. Bush, who's a wonderful human being, Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, I want the temperament and judgment of the person in the Oval Office, whether I like him or not, to be considered mature and temperamental.
0: Well said. And I know something else that pisses you off attacking the integrity of people like yourself who have security clearances and questioning whether you monetize that or not by someone who has absolutely no experience in intelligence and is simply just a media mouthpiece uh, for the president i have to ask you that day when you had that confrontation with paris denard who is now no longer a cnn commentator for other reasons that put you on the map with a lot of folks that who may not have paid attention to you before. And I know I know I was. People were cheering you for putting him in his place. And what were you thinking at that moment? Where I know I, I can only imagine that there were some expletives that you wanted to come out of your mouth, but you were cognizant of the fact that you that you were on live TV. Just just for people who saw that and cheered you on? What were you thinking? Because I'm sure that was not a moment you planned or looked forward to or wish it would ever happen again.
1: Well, and I'm not proud of it. I should not have done that. Um, the things that I said were appropriate, and I've never said this in a forum because the, the news changed the next day. I was going to speak on air. The things that I said were appropriate, and I can explain why the, the, the temperament I displayed is a temperament I criticize people for. I should have been more restrained. That said, after 25 years in for someone to suggest that people like me monetize a security clearance, which is what happens. Some people do. Be, like everything in life, when you get out of a business if somebody wants to pay you for your expertise, you know, whether you're in trucking or whether you're in electronics, whether you're a political consultant, people do that. Former presidents get paid to speak to companies. They're monetizing their former, I don't think it's bad, but the suggestion that people like me and people who've been threatened by the president monetize, to me, that was a talking point. I've never made a dime off my security clearance, and let me be even clearer. The only reason I have a security clearance is that the government has requested I retain it. I did not ask for it. They request that people like me retain it so that we can be consulted periodically. I've never used it, except when the government Government calls me into a secret facility to tell me, to ask me, what do you think? So to have after 25 years, especially for a political party and both parties have done that, it typically says, thanks for your service to say, you guys are a bunch of mercenary chumps. Boy, I'm restraining myself now. But that night, that's the first one of the first times I heard that talking point. And I was just, people think that some of that is staged. It's not.
0: That's true. It's not. I can speak to that.
1: I regretted it off the air. I should not have spoken as I did to him. But that was incredibly insulting and also factually incorrect.
0: Well, you know what, Phil, as someone who's been doing live TV now for the last five years and has been in situations where sometimes, you know, against some of these people who are just incorrigible, I think we all get a pass to lose it every once in a while. And you know what? Every Every once in a while, they just push you and sometimes you just lose it. And so we're going to give you a pass on that. (laughs) <laughs> I give you a pass, and uh, right. you know, don't beat yourself up over it. But at least, at least you have the the, 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 the self you're self deprecating enough to know that hey, it happened. I you yeah, know I know on. I should I shouldn't have done it, but you know, move on, move, move on. on, yeah, Phil. You have been so generous with your time. We, we went like over double the time that we initially slotted, but it was such an amazing conversation, an educational one, a valuable one. And I think that everyone listening will has learned more about Phil Mudd. We now know what you like to drink. <laughs> 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 um, and I, I just can't thank you enough, Phil. It's been it's been Thanks. such a pleasure. Keep up the great work and um, I'll see you on CNN. All
1: right. Take care.
0: Look, I've been talking about some pretty serious issues out there, real problems, but one of them should never be finding great looking new blinds for your windows. That's why BlindsGalore.com is around. BlindsGalore.com was the first place to buy custom window treatments online. So they really do know what they're doing. They've been in business for over 20 years. They're family owned and have covered over 2 million windows. So they know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right time price. They make it so easy. Blinds Galore creates 100% custom window treatments built to your exact measurements down to every detail. You get professional designer quality products, but not at designer prices. In fact, they beat the big box store prices. BlindsGalore.com's products are hand-built from scratch, never prefabricated. They're delivered right to your door and created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone, whichever you prefer. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. If you don't like your custom blinds or shades for any reason at all, the wrong color, you measured them wrong, you don't like the style, you can exchange it for free and get another covering for free. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of their free expertise. It doesn't get any better than that. Whether you need more privacy, to sleep in, or just to fix up a room, BlindsGalore.com has just what you're looking for. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know that I, Tarasette Mayer, sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. So this week's feel-good story um, I felt was appropriate since I am in New York. And it's something positive that New York City is doing for people. Um, And I have a heart for helping people. So this was a great story. Um, It was in the Washington Post and it's titled New York Library lends out ties and briefcases and handbags for job interviews. So basically there's a, a public library in the Riverdale section of New York that has decided to take some grant money and buy ties and bags and briefcases for men and women to check out if you don't have the money to dress properly for a job interview, which plagues a lot of folks and people take that for granted. So when I saw this story, I thought this is really great because my mom, my mom and I, we, um, my mom actually started a faith-based homeless program down in the Florida Keys and I helped her with that years ago. And we saw how important it was to help people just to have a restore their sense of dignity and to give them a hand up so when I saw this story it really struck home for me because people all they sometimes all it takes is that one helping hand that one thing and just because of your circumstance you shouldn't be a victim of it and seeing people trying to better themselves and the opportunity with something from our public libraries to give people that opportunity I thought was great so kudos to the New York Public Library Um, for, for doing this so far they said they're working on an honor system it's relatively a new program but that people can check stuff out for up to three weeks and then they bring it back and if you get fined you get fined if you don't bring it back on time just like library books so I hope that this is a successful program I think it's a great idea and a great use of of taxpayer money and also of grant money and I think more libraries should should think about doing that so kudos to the New York City Public Library for giving people a hand up. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Honestly Speaking with Tara. You can follow me at Twitter on Twitter at thetarasetmayor. You can follow the podcast at honestly underscore Tara. Hashtag honestly speaking Tara. Send me your questions. Send me your comments. Love to hear them. Any guest suggestions, questions you'd like me to answer. I'm all for it. So we'll see you next week on Honestly Speaking with Tara.